This podcast was brought to you by our supreme boilers of leather, the Elton Dane, the new sword of the morning, Morgan, and Kate Kachka. If you want to find out how to become a supreme boiler of leather, or if you want access to all the cool bonus materials we offer, head over to patreon.com slash boiled leather audio hour. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Boiled Leather Audio Hour. We are back with our regular series on German history. We are still in the Kaiserreich series and within that series we are in our mini-series about World War One. Today will be the year 1916 but I would be remiss to start it without mentioning who is with me or better to let him introduce himself. It's the one and only... Uh, hey everyone, it's Jim, commonly called something like a lawyer, and now we're in 1916, which when a lot of people are thinking about World War One, this is the year that they think of. A lot of the big names show up, Verdun, the Somme, Brusilov, and uh, now we're going to go and really pick apart what makes 1916 so crazy, because a lot of stuff happens, especially on the German side in 1916. Absolutely. You already gave the through line away, more or less, because 1916 is the year that everyone thinks about when they think about World War One. It's um, it has been the foundational thing, you know, uh, informing all the popular uh, depictions of the war. We get the big stalemate battles, the um, intentionally attritional battles of the Somme and of Verdun. We get uh, the useless artillery bombardment over days and weeks. Uh, we get uh, human wave attacks, all of that stuff that usually is uh, commonly associated with World War One. We get the purest form of it in 1916. So if you watch any movie about World War One, uh, or if you watch photos or see someone talking about it and talking about trench warfare and, um, and the futility of all of it, usually what they mean is more or less the experience of 1916. Because as we talked about it before, in 1914 and in 1915, everything was just shaking out. And in 1917 and 1918, they usually try to circumvent these new facts on the ground. But in 1916, we are really in the blood mill uh, and all of that, uh, all of that good stuff. And Jim also already mentioned the big names. We have three gigantic land battles that take place within 1916. Um, they are maybe not the biggest in terms of numbers, but they are the most memorable. We get the Battle of Verdun, which has been burned into the subconscious of France and of Germany. We get the Battle of the Somme, which has been burned into the subconscious of the British, not so much the Germans, funny enough. And then we get the Brusilov Offensive, which has been largely forgotten, uh, but which is incredibly important. To top all of that off, we get the one and only major encounter on the seas in the Battle of Jutland or the Battle of Skagerrak, uh, as the Germans say. It's funny how they name the battles of the different places. And we also get the Romanian campaign to top it all off, and that's just on the military side of things. But I don't want to take everything away. Let's just start with the military part of it. 
and go into the general strategy that everyone had for the year. We talked about it in 1915, that basically uh, the Germans played defense in the West and let the Allies attack, which they did to little success, and tried to go more offense in the East. Now this year, it will be more or less reversed, although both sides are still planning offensives. The Allies are planning a gigantic offensive, uh, and the Germans are playing one. And who starts the offensive first will be huge in determining what else happens. Because as the Allies, you want to coordinate your attacks. So ideally, the British, the French, and the Russians attack all at the same time, put incredible pressure on the German lines, and achieve a breakthrough. That is the general idea that the Allies have for uh, the year 1916. And the idea of the Germans is to attack the French much earlier than that, uh, and to basically force something. And at this point, we are going into the myth of Verdun, because what exactly the Germans intended when they started to attack Verdun is not as clear-cut as one would assume. But I guess you, Jim, have more information on yeah, all so of it, that. So it's always worth saying, it's like, because the, you know, Falkenhayn, who is the, the German general of staff, was basically, he said that we don't want to take Verdun, we want to lure the French in and bloody them at Verdun. And there's conflicting information on to what happens, but here's how I basically parse out what happened in 1916 as it relates to the Western Front, is that Falkenhayn knew that the British and the French were developing a large spring offensive campaign. And this isn't exactly rocket science because, I mean, it's while the myth of that, you know, people don't fight in winter is should be just, you know, seen as a myth. It's easier to fight in the spring when the ground's not all frozen. Um, well, actually, it's like it's, it's easier to fight. It's easier to fight either when the ground is completely frozen over or when the ground is dry. In these early spring rains, it actually gets very difficult to actually move. Uh, so we've got... Uh, essentially they know that the spring campaign is coming. And so the Germans decide that what they need to do is act as a disruptor for this. So what Falkenhayn does at Verdun, at least my belief is, is that he wants to provoke the British to abandon their plans and launch a relief effort because they fear that their their lines are under threat. So I think what Falkenhayn wanted to do was to cause the British to march to Artois, and then the French would have to march at Belfort, and that would essentially pull them out of their fortifications, pulled them out into the open where then they could then be attacked. And then a war of movement would ascend, you know, they'd break themselves against the German fixed defenses, and then Germany would be able to open up and make a war of movement. And then once that ability happens, they could th- use the threat of penetration into French territory to essentially drop French and English morale, and then maybe perhaps see about getting a um, essentially a status quo peace where the, all of the territories that Germany has, they will take into their possession and or possibly say, you know, we'll give we'll give back the Netherlands or uh, Belgium and we'll we'll uh, take these French territories just instead, just because, you know, we won the war. So we do get the, the transfer of territory. And then. They use the threat of the Western Front collapsing to essentially force the Russians back 
and then move forward and then take areas of where what would now be Poland and uh, Belarus uh, and the, the Baltic states and establish their uh, Baltic Confederation. Uh, that, at least that was the plan from the September program by uh, Beethoven Holweg. So that's what I think the, you know, that's what I think the German strategic plan was. And on its surface, it's not a bad idea. The problem is, is that Verdun was so bloody that everyone was trying to point fingers as to who was to blame. So everybody is trying to cover their asses. And that's why you get the, this conflicting information. Um, so it's like, you know, they're trying to, essentially everyone's trying to save face after the war and that's where you get this, this whole thing. And frankly speaking, where Falkenhayn messed up was that he really underestimated a, how capable the Russians were going to be. And we're going to talk about that with Busilov and B, he really underestimated that the French willingness to fight, especially in a defensive war was a lot stronger than he thought it was going to be. Uh, it was thought that these high casualties were going to cause popular unrest. And there was some thought about that, but the idea it's like, well, you know, we've lost so many casualties. We have to get something out of this because it's one thing to take a whole bunch of casualties and win. And it's another thing to get a whole bunch of casualties and lose. And so the British and the French were probably thinking if we ever, you know, you know, turn tuck tail, then we are going to have our political careers are going to be over Our, you know, we might even be facing popular, severe popular unrest at the thought of we lost so much and, uh, you know, flash forward a little bit to 1917 and we realized that that's exactly what happens to the Russians. So I can't really see that, you know, that's, I think that, that was the strategic blunder of Verdun, but that the, the plan itself, at least conceptually is not wrong. It's just that there, there were factors that were uh, underestimated in the German strategic calculation. Absolutely. Verdun will, I mean, one of the part, uh, one of the reasons they attack Verdun uh, is because, uh, at least they say, uh, say afterwards, is because of the mythic position of the important nationalist position it has within the French subconsciousness. Uh, there is, uh, it is a big place for medieval history. And if you ever visit Verdun, uh, there is not only the stuff from World War One, but you can also visit a medieval town with a cathedral uh, and all of that and a rich medieval history. Although I would assume most people nowadays come because of World War One. So uh, the idea is to, uh, to force the French into defending what's theirs uh, on um, on terrain that is unfavorable uh, to them. And that part of the plan, at least, works out because the French do commit to the defense of Verdun. It becomes a nationalist enterprise. Verdun takes on an almost mythical uh, meaning for the French. And one thing that they do, which the Germans will not do, uh, and which I guess uh, is smart on the French side, is to rotate all their troops through Verdun. Because this is the hell uh, experience uh, of World War One. No one really wants to be at Verdun. Uh, every, uh, every letter you read from soldiers, every uh, witness account, uh, gives you an image of a battle that is just absolutely gruesome. And when we are talking battle here, we are talking about a front that stretches for like 30, 40 miles at least, and that takes nine months 
to fulfill. So if you are in March when they start the battle, or in February, I'm not quite certain, but in uh, in the early spring, when you are a soldier in there, you are looking forward, although you don't know it yet, to nine months of incredibly bloody um, and incredibly uncomfortable fighting. Uh, it starts in the rain and the mud uh, of spring. It goes on through the smeltering heat of summer, and it goes back into the rain for um, for the fall until it finally starts to wind down. And at the end of it, you have almost 600,000 people dead on both sides, a countless number of, uh, of casualties uh, in total. Uh, many units that are in Verdun, they take like 200, 300% casualties. And the French cope with this by rotating, rotating all their troops through Verdun. So the deal that they tell their troops, I'm not sure uh, how, it, uh, how it holds up in practice, but this is what, uh, what the myth-making, what the propaganda is, is that basically everyone has to go to Verdun once, and when they are done, they are done. Yeah? Uh, so uh, this is a fixed period of time that you have to endure for the, uh, for the nation, for La Grande Nation. Uh, and after you did it, after you brought your sacrifice, then you are you have fulfilled your duty, and uh, this um, this leads to every French soldier having a tether, a moral tether, uh, to Verdun as a place, and explains why this why this battle has become so ubiquitous in French memory. On the German side, this does not happen. The German units that are there, they are there. Uh, of course, they get uh, refreshments, uh, they get reinforcements, they get time off, etc., etc., but the units themselves are not moved. There is no comparable uh, switch redo uh, on the German side. So for the German soldiers, uh, this is even worse uh, because there is no way they are getting out of this uh, other than the battle ending or them dying, basically. Um, and the French uh, also have another uh, element that I want to talk about when it comes to the myth-making of Verdun, which is the Roi Sacré, uh, the Holy Road, uh, which leads into Verdun. Because it's, at, one, at one point there is basically only one road left uh, over which you can bring reinforcements uh, and supplies uh, into Verdun. And this road is called uh, the Holy Road, uh, the Roi Sacré, uh, because it is what keeps them in the fight. And the thing is, it it plays this uh, it plays this image in what I just told. It is basically the capstone of this whole myth, because what it does is to um, uh, is you have this thing that reinforcements are marching over this road into battle, and as you near Verdun, you first get the sounds, then you get the smell, uh, and then you get the sight of it. And you're walking in, and uh, and the landscape becomes more hellish by the mile. Um, and on the other side of the road, uh, everyone is coming out. So you see battered veterans, wounded people, uh, and all of them are going out. And for them, everything becomes bright and uh, colorful again. Whereas for the fresh troops that are going in, it becomes worse and worse. And this experience has seared itself uh, into the French subconscious. And I just find it fascinating uh, to think about it in that way. Because... It seems to encapsulate uh, this uh, this experience of war, this moving into uh, the hell of battle and moving out of it again. It's just boiling it down so much, and I think that's why it's so efficient in French propaganda. Yeah, and so it's primary. I mean, there's a lot of artillery, a lot of poison gas, uh, especially since a lot of these fortifications are very, very good. Um, and in fact, sometimes they even say that they a lot of these. Uh, 
these fortifications were actually dismantled so that the guns could go to other parts of the front. But that changed and artillery was brought into Verdun on the French side. And so you have phosgene gas and things like that of people and they're in, they're in these essentially underground uh, chambers. And this gas, these gases, which are typically heavier than air, are just seeping through, snuffing out the candles. And so there is really, when, when we say horror, we're not being facetious or hyperbolic at all. There are descriptions of Verdun that it's like, this is hell on earth. There are areas in Verdun that are roped off because they say there are too many unexploded shells too close to the surface. If you walk in there, there is a very good chance that you will, you will detonate an artillery shell. And so they're roped off and you're not allowed to go there. And if you think about, you know, I mean, you know, nowadays, you know, the vegetation has grown back. But if you look at actual contemporary pictures, you'll see like strange, um, essentially shapes of earth because, you know, artillery shells just fell on this area. And it's just, it looks like the moon. And it's so it's like, it's, you know, when people are talking about how, you know, Verdun has the, this idea where, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't exist in real world. It exists in paintings because it was so foreign to uh, individuals, uh, you know, experiences. So that's one of the things when we're talking about Verdun, we're not trying, you know, we're not under, you know, or uh, we're not trying to undersell it or anything like, or oversell it or anything like that. It was this bad. There's a reason it's has been like a scar on the soul of the, of France and Germany. And you can't even, it's like Stalingrad for Russia. It's like, it's just, it was this bad. And, you know, everyone has their own subjective experiences about what is hell or what is the worst thing you can experience. But it's just Verdun has just so pervasive. But I mean, you know, so from the perspective of the Germans to trying to make sure, you know, cause a lot of casualties, uh, provoke domestic unrest. So they go and they attack these fortifications and you know, according to Falkenhayn, he is saying, hey, you know, we don't actually want to take these fortifications. We just want to lure the French in to be slaughtered. But then Crown Prince Wilhelm is actually taking up these, um, you know, taking up these fortifications and then the Germans get trapped and they get shelled and all that. And so according, you know, but again, I think most of, most of that is just, you know, cover your own ass type stuff. So it's just... This is, um, you know, this is difficult. And of course, it doesn't help that I believe pretty much everybody in the Central Powers hates Falkenhayn. Um, what is it? Uh, Bettmann Holweg hated him. Conrad von Hutzendorf hated him. Uh, obviously, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, which we'll talk about in a little bit, they hated him. Uh, pretty much the only, you know, so the there is dysfunction in the general high, in the German, you know, high staff. And that is also causing problems because now Falkenhayn is not releasing his strategic plans. He's just keeping them close to the chest. And now, so that means that operational discretion has to fall towards field commanders and they may not, you know, say, know exactly what's going on. So they're going to conduct the battle as they've been conducting previous battles. So you can see how dysfunction really hampers the, um, you know, we, uh, the the central uh, powers because we, we we talked about this before with um, you know Stefan had said you know the Russians the the British and the French all want to co coordinate their attacks but they really don't talk to each other they don't share their plans with each other it's not until 
1917, I believe, that Ferdinand Foch is actually appointed the Supreme Allied Commander. We think of joint coalition environments having a Supreme Allied Commander as a matter of course. Eisenhower was the Supreme Allied Commander for D-Day and so on and so forth. But that didn't happen because of, I mean, a lot of national reasons, a lot of, you know, the Germans aren't going to surrender to an Austrian or are not going to accede to an Austrian superior commander and, and so on and so forth. So there is this dysfunction uh, because, I mean, the size and the scope and the multinational elements of the war. I mean, things like the Crimean War um, were much more independent and there was just a, you know, a French command and a British command and an Ottoman command, whereas the nature of warfare now has changed to the point where it requires a lot more coordination. And, um, you know, it needs radios and shared uh, joint commands. And, you know, you need to be able to synchronize these things. And we don't have the communication technology that necessarily would enable such things to be much more well-coordinated, especially when you're talking about, say, the Eastern Front versus the Western Front. The Central Powers are a little bit more unified in that regard because they have internal lines of communication. They can actually just, if there are places where things are quiet, they can move supplies and men into, uh, through the interior of their countries to fronts that need them. That's not necessarily the case with the Entente because the Russians are on one side and the French and British are on the other. But that is a big problem, this dysfunction, this inability to actually coordinate a unified plan of attack, which could have actually swung things for either power in 1916 if they were able to actually get that under control. I'm always fascinated by such institutional stuff because it... it it isn't featured in uh, in your usual representations. You know, you get battles, you get technology, especially when it comes to popular history, you always get the technologies of, oh, they're using this weapon of this caliber, and then this is the artillery, and then you have gas, uh, and you have trenches. But stuff like the structure of the general staff are mostly overlooked in such accounts, but they are hugely important. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, there's a, there's a saying, and it says, uh, amateurs talk tactics, professionals study logistics. I believe it was Omar Bradley that talked about that. And so the nitty gritty of how a war is actually fought is very important to military historians and for nerds like me. Uh <laughs> yeah, I find it fascinating as well. And it has real world implications because if you do not um, get down to this nitty gritty and if you concentrate on the wrong stuff, as the Germans did, we talked about this a lot of times already, uh, the German preoccupation, the German obsession with the decisive battle um, has always clouded their strategic thinking. The nitty-gritty of fighting a war, the logistics of it, the strategy, uh, the war economy, finding allies, all of that has always taken a backseat to the question of how do we fight the big decisive battle? And Germany has really suffered for it. Uh, so th this is a question not only of academic relevance, but of real-world implications. And so uh, this is more or less the Battle of Verdun. It's this blood mill. It is, it is an attritional battle. It kills hundreds of thousands of people with practically no effect. This is as close to a draw uh, as the classical decisive battles of World War I get. If, of course, you do not also add in the Somme, which one could argue is more or less the same battle, just at another place uh, of France and Belgium, uh, but it repeats the experience, one could say, almost in reverse. Uh, would you talk a little bit about where the Battle of the Somme comes from uh, and what, uh, what marks it out? 
Okay, so the big thing with the Battle of the Somme is that when this Verdun campaign happens, the French are asking for support from their British allies. They say, look, you need to launch a relief effort to take pressure off of Verdun. And the British go and they attack along the River Somme, and they're completely unprepared. And and not just a little bit either. I mean, they're using the... I think one of the things I think that gave me the biggest uh like indication of how unprepared the british were for uh the initial battle of the somme which is the bloodiest day in british military history is um they're trying to fire shells to break up the the initial fortification the barbed wire again another famous thing that uh that the world war one is known for and they're using anti-personnel shrapnel rounds to do it. So anti-personnel shrapnel rounds, which are meant to explode over a trench and rain shrapnel down to kill people, are trying to be used to break fortifications, which you're not supposed to use. You're supposed to use high explosives so that it kicks up a lot of force and pushes the fortifications aside. So um, essentially, the Somme is, they're, they're essentially trying to launch an attack using the wrong, uh, you know, artillery rounds in order to prepare the ground. And then so when the British run, the fortifications are still in place and the Germans mow them down. Um, And according to at least uh, apparently some recent information, uh, the Germans knew that the Somme was coming. Uh, They um, apparently there was uh, like a a leak of uh, information and so uh, they knew exactly where the psalm was coming. Uh, they, they knew when it was coming, and they were able to prepare in advance. Um, so the it's just you know again the, these Germans get just mow down the British. Uh, it's already hard to to cross uh, you know these no man's lands uh, when you actually do get you know breaches in the fortifications. Without them, you're just stuck, and you have to try and cut through and they're not bringing in field engineers to do this because field engineers are very useful. Uh, so there is, st- you know, not, not saying that the British do, uh, they get nothing, uh, especially later on when, you know, in the second phase in, in the summer of 1916, they're really starting to advance and they're starting to take, you know, Devel Wood, Guillemont, uh, Jinchi. Um, they're actually really starting to attack this front line. They make some successes. And then later on, they start to attack the intermediate line. Cause was, as we remember, um, the, we said that these trenches are usually in, in rows of three. So sometimes they can actually get to the front, but then they get pushed back when the, uh, specifically the emergency guns that are zeroed in on the trenches start opening, opening fire and they can't take, uh, they can't really secure themselves in the trench before their possession becomes untenable and they take too many casualties. So, you know, I mean, the, the, British are advancing, but they're taking massive casualties. And just like we said with Verdun, we're talking hundreds of thousands. The British take 420,000 casualties in the Somme. And you have to remember, the Somme is only a four-month battle. It's, it's about a, just a little shy of five months. So you're taking almost half a million casualties. The Germans are taking almost half a million casualties. Um the French take, uh, you know, that they, they have they have supporting uh, units helping out with, um, you know, helping out Haig on the uh, the Somme. They take two hundred thousand. So the Germans are, you know, they get a fifty percent casualty ratio, 
you know, 620,000 to 440,000 ish, but it's not strategically decisive. The battles, I mean, there's just a little bit of a salient and that's it. So you're spending, I mean, you're talking a million plus people on both sides, dead, wounded, or captured for a very, very small salient. And that is, I think, why the in the psalm, the British is stained into their soul. I and mean, this is, I mean, uh, J.R. Tolkien, this is his first battle, his first taste of battle. And you can really see the psalm kind of, uh, you know, reflected in The Lord of the Rings when you see things like uh, Saruman's industrial warfare um, in, in the, you know, the, in the novel series of just the, the brutality and futility uh, that the psalm uh, inflicted upon the British psyche. Yep. <laughs> just yes. Uh, the Somme, once again, here in Germany, it has not this huge place uh, in memory. I never under, really understood why, because the casualty numbers of German soldiers who fell at the Somme are practically the same as in Verdun. Uh, but whereas Verdun is... If you know anything about World War One, you do know the name Verdun, whereas the Somme is usually uh, not something that people know. The same is true about Flanders uh, in general. Um, I visited Flanders only a month ago uh, with my students, and no one even knows where it is. Uh, if I say Flanders, uh, no one has an idea that it's in Belgium, <laughs> or the, whether it's east or west uh, or south. Uh, so this, uh, like, w when you say to a British person, in Flanders fields, you know, they, they instantly know what I'm talking about. In Germany, none, none of it. Uh, the poppy uh, is not a symbol that is recognized here. The Somme as a battlefield isn't. Uh, Ypres uh, is not recognized. Flanders uh, isn't recognized. It all uh, concentrates on Verdun uh, for some reason. Uh, it just has, uh, it, it just happened that way. I, th I think it's because of the length. Uh, it's the longest battle in, I believe, yeah, currently it's the longest battle. Although I think the Battle of Bakhmut, uh, it might actually be about to beat it in, in, uh, in Ukraine at this point. Uh, but it is, I think that is the big thing is that it's, it's so long and so costly, but you know, it's like, you know, I mean, the th it's the same thing, like who was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic ocean? And it's Charles Lindbergh. And we all know that because he was the first guy to do it, but who was the second guy? I, I don't know, but he flew better than Charles Lindbergh did. Uh, but, um, you know, they're record holders just for some, uh, for, you know, record holders, uh, you know, same with the Somme, but the British. It's the deadliest day in the British military history. And, um, you know, there's all, I mean, there's, there's other cultural things. I mean, why do certain cultural touchstones resonate and others kind of fall by the wayside 20 or 30 years afterwards? Uh, I mean, th I'm sure there's a lot of socio-psychological research that could tell you uh, why certain things happen. Uh, me personally, uh, I don't know, but I think it's just the reason why it's kind of the, in the German military, you know, German popular mind, the Battle of Verdun is because of how long it was and how much it came to symbolize the futility of the Western Front of almost 10 months of nothing. But I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know that that I just that's just a guess on my part. Yeah, it, it makes sense. Uh, it, it really makes sense because you cannot remember more than one or two battles. I think this is even more true when we talk about the Brusilov offensive uh, soon. Uh, but memory space just is restricted and so 
the Somme was just big, I guess, and very bloody. But for the British, it had all these implications because in Great Britain, you have this myth of the incompetent officer corps in World War One, uh, who do not know what they're doing, who are totally divorced from the front and who are uh, sending the men into uh, into slaughter without one uh, one thought about it, etc. And while this is a caricature, um, I don't think uh, that this, uh, this is mostly uh, associated with the Somme. Uh, in British memory, and it is not with Germans. We uh, have the same thing for we're done, uh, I would argue. So um, I think this is where we can leave the Western Front. We get the bloodiest year, uh, at least in public perception, uh, of the whole war, and the front lines essentially do not move in any relevant category. There is a different story to be told in the East. Uh, as always, there is a lot more movement because the front is just so much wider, you cannot cover it all with defensive structures. Uh, and of course, uh, it also has different dynamics. And so um, not only do the British start a relief effort uh, at the Somme uh, to get some pressure off Verdun, the Russians also start an offensive. And as I said in the very beginning, these should have been coordinated all at the same time. Uh, initially. Now they are set apart by a few weeks or even months, uh, but uh, still the Russian attack is incredibly successful and it more or less breaks the Austrian army. So can you talk a little bit about the Brusilov offensive and maybe also as to why it has been forgotten? Okay, well, I mean, I, I'm, I think part of the reason why the, it has been forgotten has to do with the lingering memory of we don't really remember a lot of Russian imperial, you know, imperial Russian history in the West. Uh, I think part of that is lingering because, you know, lingering sentiments of the Cold War and, you know, a lot of information gets restricted and especially when, you know, World War II happens and then that really dominates history, uh, the history of, you know, popular consciousness of war, and then it's on, all behind the Iron Curtain, and a lot of information just gets kind of get forgotten as it's just the nebulous other. Uh, but, and this is kind of a shame too, because Russia was stereotyped as, uh, you know, incompetent, uh, largely a rural backwater. Um, all they're really good for is throwing men at the problem. And now, there was a lot of incompetence in the Russian army. I mean, we talked about this at Tannenberg with Samsonov and, um, oh shoot, I can't remember the name of the other one on top of my head. Um, but, uh, you know, the generals that hated each other and didn't want to talk to each other, but that's not the case. I mean, you can't stereotype anyone as anything, especially when it comes to countries. I mean, unless, of course, you know, we're talking about Germans and being humorless, which is, as far as I'm concerned, is gospel truth. I had to have a little had to have a little dig at you there, uh, Stefan. But um, it's just the I don't think that's funny. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, but uh, there was actually some modernization efforts being done, and one of the big things that animated a lot of German strategic thinking in the initial lead up, you know, in the July crisis, was the idea that Russia was uh, modernizing, and they had taken massive loans from the French in order to do it. And the same thing is true with the Brusilov offensive. They don't think that the that Brusilov is capable, or well, the Russians are capable, and the Russians get their easily their best general in World War One, and it's a guy named Alexei Brusilov. And he says he's going to to support his allies, and he's going to launch a campaign, and it is a massive campaign. This goes, I mean, we're talking the. Um, 
the, the Brusilov campaign is stretching all the way up from essentially the Baltic Sea all the way down to where Hungary is. Um, and they are, they start with, and, you know, and it's actually conducted relatively competently. They first start with military deception. They use, um, you know, they take, they send messengers with false information. They use false radio broadcasts. They use, uh, you know, uh, like tree trunks that are painted to look like artillery pieces. And then they were, you know, they did some mining operations and all that other stuff. And then they launched and they did a massive artillery fire. And then get this, they used stormtrooper tactics. They are very rudimentary. Uh, you know, when we think of stormtrooper tactics, we're thinking of Ludendorff and, you know, the 1918 Kaiserschlacht. That's what we're thinking of when we think of World War I stormtrooper tactics. But infiltration tactics, the ability to kind of move under blind spots, to send men in, to take trenches, to use smaller force applied intelligently, which, if you'll remember, is exactly what the Germans did to the Russians in 1915. And they use the exact same tremendous effect here. And Brusilov, especially in the early after, uh, in initial stages, is wildly successful. They penetrate a lot of uh, lines, especially on the Austro-Hungarian side. There are uh, military strategists who, in, who uh, are saying this, and not without just cause. They say that this is the effective end of the Austro-Hungarian military as a offensive fighting force. Um, that, I would say that that's not necessarily true because of what happens on the Italian front a little bit later at Caporetto and places like that. But on the Eastern front, Austria-Hungary is crippled and will be crippled for much of the rest of the war um, because of just how successful Brusilov is in taking territory and in inflicting uh, casualties. Uh, the estimates are for uh, Austria-Hungary is that they lose 600,000, uh, you know, 200,000 dead and wounded, 400,000 prisoners. Think about that. Half a million prisoners, give or take, um, you know, actually, you know, 40% of a million are captured. And then, you know, there's uh, the Germans, they have a little bit more success because the Germans are a little bit better when it comes to their defensive works. But all in all, you're looking at three quarters to a million, roughly speaking, casualty on the central powers. There's only one problem. The Russians also take massive casualties. Uh, the, the estimates wild, are very wildly, uh, but I mean, anywhere from half a million to a million casualties. Now, the problem also, it comes with the scale the Russians have, roughly speaking, about 1.7 million troops. Uh, the Central Powers have about 1 million total. So you're looking at around 60% casualties on the, on the um, Central Powers side. That's very successful, but so many Russians die. So many Russians are maimed that this causes severe domestic unrest in Russia and because after the initial failures at uh, Tannenberg and the failures in 1915, the czar himself has decided that he's going to take personal command and he's going to take personal ownership of the Russian war effort. And this leads the Romanov dynasty to be inextricably linked 
with both foreign failure abroad and then with uh, the very, very unpopular Zarina at home. She gets, you know, this is with Rasputin and all that. She's also has German ancestry. So a lot of Russians think she's a traitor. Uh, so that causes domestic pressure at home against the Romanovs that will culminate in 1917, which is a little bit beyond this episode that we're talking about. But Brusilov, if you want to talk about a Pyrrhic victory, this is what Brusilov is, is that it creates great success, but it really starts to make Russia brittle. And that's what I think the best way you can think about the Brusilov. And what should really shake us out of the mentality that the Russians, especially in World War I, were completely incompetent. They developed no new uh, techniques. They developed no new innovations. They didn't learn. They didn't do any of that. That is completely incorrect. When Brusilov came to the field, he came to play and he showed his chops brilliantly. I find the parallel interesting of the war goes bad and so the command takes personal command and fucks it up because we get the same thing in World War II for the Germans. Uh, all those disaster le disasters lead to Hitler taking more command responsibility, which of course does nothing to alleviate the problems of the German army, to put it mildly. And uh, the Tsar uh, becomes synonymous with the war uh, effort and with the... Um, uh, with the uh, with the defeats, uh, and the same thing happens in Germany as well. Hitler's popularity is tanking after 1942, uh, and one of the reasons is because he's personally uh, linked to all of these uh, decisions, all of these uh, defeats, um, and and it and it becomes a huge problem for the regime. And, and Russia is an autocracy, uh, which has proven to be completely unable to reform. Uh, they had this revolution in 1905, which led to the creation of a parliament that then was quickly defanged again. Uh, practically nothing uh, of the problems of the country was solved. Uh, it, there has been this ongoing discussion uh, throughout the whole of the 19th century uh, about uh, the need for reform in Russia. Uh, and then you have this unwillingness of the autocracy uh, to react to it. And uh, all of that comes to a head in the crisis moments of um, of the uh, First World War. And all those soldiers uh, that you mentioned, they are an armed force. And this armed force is becoming increasingly uh, dissatisfied with how the war is fought. Uh, they don't want to do it anymore. And the Brusilov Offensive is a little bit like the straw that breaks the camel's back, or at least will break the camel's back a little bit further down the road. Because as of now, the Russian uh, army, as you said, looks pretty successful, but it is a Pyrrhian victory. It lays the foundation for uh, the later defeat uh, of the Russian army. And the Germans will... And ironically, oh yes, ironically also, the problem is, is that they it wasn't supported by the Russians. I mean, there there were other campaigns that were supposed to happen uh, in the North and in the South, uh, and they ended up not uh, happening in, in conjunction. So the Russians or the Germans were able to relieve themselves from the worst parts of the Brusilov offensive and were able to kind of prevent a complete and total breakthrough of the Austrian trench lines. So... Not only so, you could say also that the the same lack of coordination, just like with, I mean with Samsonov at Tannenberg, the German or the the Russian commanders who are you know they're have ego trips, they're trying to make their own careers and all that other stuff, and you know Brusilov does well, but he can't get any support from the north or the south, and so 
that combined with the fact that he can't make intelligent plans for what happens next because he doesn't have ground surveillance. He doesn't have cavalry recon. He doesn't have any of this stuff. So just like all the times before, the initial attack is incredibly successful. And then there's, so in military planning, there is what you call, you know, D plus one or H plus one or something. Essentially, what do you do after this campaign? And, you know, you can either, once you get to where you're going, do you, how do you try to exploit or do you try to consolidate and run recon and make another plan? Uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages to each, but because of that, because Brusilov can't make big plans with his big army uh, for essentially D plus one, that makes it much harder for him to actually exploit and cause, for example, a complete and total breakthrough in the Austro-Hungarian lines. Nothing to add here. This is one of the biggest problems, once again, also with the German military. We will see the same thing in 1918 when they're doing their gigantic offensive. There, there is no plan for the day after. Uh, Ludendorff is attributed this great quote of, we will smash a hole into it and then we'll see. And, uh, and you cannot base a military strategy on then we'll see. This is just such a stupid idea, and they are doing the same thing here uh, on the Russian side, and it pays the same dividends uh, for the Germans. I, I will have to, I will have to push back a little bit on this because while it is tough, they're also working with severe operational restraints. Um, you know, at this point now, especially, you know, I mean, first off, the Russians really don't have any aircraft, but that was the only thing you were able really to do when it came to actual intelligent you know, mapping of fortifications. You can use balloons or anything like that, which as soon as the balloons happen, you know, uh, you know, if Russia launched a balloon, uh, you know, Manfred von Richthofen would shoot it down because, well, I mean, that's very bad. So I think part of the problem is, is that you don't have aerial reconnaissance. You don't have radios to be able to translate that or, or to, to, you know, to, to dispatch it uh, very quickly. Uh, you know, you have to go and make maps and things like that. So while I do agree that, you know, yes, it is bad to say, then we'll see. There's also the capabilities and the technology for, to make, we'll see with, we'll do this is not quite there yet. And I think part of that is, you know, we're spoiled these days when it comes to satellite recon. I mean, we can get commercially available, not even commercially, freely available, high resolution satellite imagery of almost everywhere, anywhere we want on the surface of the earth. And we don't really have that in 1916. Okay, that is fair. Uh, I mean, technological limitations are what they are. So speaking of technological limitations, let's move on to the high seas where we get the Battle of Utland, the one and only sea battle of seagoing big battleships that we get in the war, the whole German high seas navy against the Royal Home Fleet. And it ends in a tactical draw and in a strategic victory for the Royal Navy. Can you explain what happens there uh, on the tactical level? Why is this a draw and... Uh, What's going on? And why is a draw a good thing for the British? Because there is this one quote that everyone has that the commander of the Royal Navy uh, in the home waters, uh, I think he's called Jellicoe, uh, he is the only person who can lose the war in a day. So what makes him not lose the war in a day on that day in Jutland? So first we have to look at the strategic side and you have to remember that we said that Germany was blockaded by the Royal Navy, which was the greatest naval power in the world and one that Germany was fiercely, um, you know, 
angry about and the Anglo-German naval race, as we discussed earlier. So the Germans are blockaded, which means they're not getting supplies, including food imports. And it's really starting to bite uh, when it comes to uh, the lack of uh, food imports in Germany. And so now the uh, British Na- or the German Navy, which who has been sent the, you know, the Kaiserstick Marine, which has been essentially just kept in uh, Wilhelmshaven, uh, go and they sail out and their goal is to see if they can break the blockade. And the reason why we say it's tactically inconclusive uh, inclusive is because, well, both navies really much kind of retreated to fight another day, but the strategically the British succeed because the blockade is still in effect. So the objective of the Germans was to break the blockade and that failed. That's why it's a British strategic victory because also the, the blockade really does help domestic pressure uh, to end the war in 1918. Uh, but tactically, and the nice thing about this is there are timetables of this battle because that's what the British and the German navies did when you know, they would give orders to fire. You'd have timepieces on the uh, bridges and a ensign or a lieutenant or whoever would actually be recording, you know, th- you know, we launched a volley at this time, at this time, at this time, at this ship. You know, this ship was bracketed. We were able to do this. We sank this ship at this time. We took damage at this time. And so you have essentially the, you know, the Jellicoe, uh, not Jellicoe, uh, Beatty, Who's the first, um, you know, they, they sail out with their, their battle cruisers and the battle cruisers are essentially trying to compromise between the firepower of battleship and the armor of, or, or the bat, and the speed of a cruiser. They're called battle cruisers. The issue is, is that they're very lightly armored because all of the weight, you know, they need speed, which means they can't have a lot of weight and all of the weight goes to the guns. So the guns and the engine, essentially. So these ships are very fast and they shoot very hard. But as soon as they get hit, it takes them out of commission. And so Beatty, who is using this uh, essentially screen force of battle cruisers, hoping that they could um, essentially fire, they you know they they go and they sight the uh, Hipper, the the uh, I can't remember the actual the naval trigraph of the Kaiserslick Marine, but the Hipper and uh, the indefatible open fire and the hipper sinks the indefatible immediately at, you know, I mean, within 30 minutes. And then another 20 minutes later, the Queen Mary is sunk. And then they go and they are trying to essentially engage with the hipper. And I mean, there's even a famous line, which uh, Beatty, I believe Beatty says, says, there's something wrong with our bloody ships. And there is because the hipper defeats two ships immediately and then as they're as they're sailing out um you know the uh, uh Beatty is trying to sail back and he says oh no there are more german reinforcements under Scheer," and they turn and now jellico starts to come in from the north and they form their these are not the uh battle cruisers these are actual ship you know the the actual naval line they start to form their line turn south and start to attack Scheer. Uh, you know, that's around uh, six o'clock. So yeah, 1800. And they start to engage in battle. And the t- there's what's called crossing the T. When you cross the T, that's when one ship, you know, one line of ships is going in one direction. 
and the other line of ships is going perpendicular, which means that all the ships that are going perpendicular can open up their side guns because most of the guns are on this are facing the side and open fire. Whereas you only can fire with your front guns. So the T gets crossed and the, you know, shear starts to turn and then Jellico starts to attack again and move south. And so you really get to see just the British and the Germans, they fire, they both take significant casualties, but essentially Shear realizes he cannot beat Jellicoe's line. And so he withdraws and goes back to Wilhelmshaven. So the British win the day, but they've lost a lot of damage and they cannot sink the Kaiserslick Marine. The Kaiserslick Marine retreats, hence why it's tactically inconclusive. Both take damage. Neither one really changes a lot of areas, but the British remain in control of the North Sea in terms of the naval blockade. And that's why it's a British strategic victory. But it's a beautiful battle. If you like Navy, actually, there's a, there's a naval channel called uh, Drachnefell. And they, they're who I go to when it comes to naval battles. And they do a very, very good write-up, play-by-play of this battle. If you want to spend a couple of hours listening to it. This would be the moment in any tabletop game where you start counting points to look where who actually won. But of course, this doesn't matter because this isn't a tabletop game. And as you said, it's a strategic victory. And just keep this point uh, in the back of your head because the Germans, as we talked about in our foreign policy episode, had sunk huge costs into building up this navy, which as of now has been useless and whose only battle in the war is a draw. And this is a big battle that in the minds of a big navy that in the minds of many people brought on an antagonism with Great Britain. So just keep this in the back of your head when the peace talks start in 1918, because there will be a lot of access to grind within that navy, which will lead to some, let's say, unfortunate decisions on the part of the German admiralty. Just just keep it in mind for now. We did talk about the Kiel mutiny a little bit when it came to uh, uh, the Weimar Republic when we were talking about the revolution episode. But yeah, this is where where you're talking about the Kiel mutiny and where that antagonism comes. It comes from this battle right Just here. as the trailer movement. So, but now we covered all of the military stuff in only short after an hour and we still have the political stuff to go. We, we haven't talked about Romania yet. Oh, damn it. That's true. There's also a battle for Romania. So let's cover that real quick. You have five minutes, sir. Okay, so Brusilov's success causes Romania to finally enter the war. Romania is primarily looking to square territorial concessions with Bulgaria and Hungary. Uh, specifically, we're talking about Transylvania and Banat. And so Romania enters the war. And they uh, there is actually a big thing about how Romania has a lot of bayonets, has a lot of wheat and all that. And so they start to attack. They make a little bit of success against uh, Austria-Hungary and Bulgaria. And then Germany comes along. Uh, von Falkenhayn, who is now out, uh, which we will talk about in just a little bit, combines forces with August von Mackensen, who had just crushed Serbia. And they conduct a brilliant campaign. And in just a few months, Romania surrenders. And now Romania is taken out of the war and arguably... The wheat, specifically, I'm looking at the wheat that they were able to gain from uh, the, uh, the surrender of Romania and the ammunition are arguably what allows Germany to continue going forward. 1917 will be a very, very bad winter, but thanks to you know 
tons of grain that is brought back into the central powers to alleviate the food uh, food blockade of Germany, they are able to, I mean, it's called the turnip winter in 1917, but it's not called the starvation winter. And a lot of it has to do with the grain that they achieve in the successful campaign against Romania. So there you go. Less than five minutes. Way less. It was only one and a half. Man, you are, uh, you are perfect in this. So this seems to be like the only really successful campaign in terms of we actually gain something from war and it happens because someone attacks you. This is irony quite there, uh, right there. All right, but now let's talk about the political intrigues because what we talk about with Verdun, Verdun destroys careers. Every single major commander that is actually in place at Verdun, which I'm talking about Joseph Joffre on the French side and um, von Falkenhayn on the uh, German side, they both get sacked. Um, and Joseph Joffre is essentially kicked upstairs to a ceremonial position because he was the hero of the Battle of the Marne. So you really can't get rid of him, but you can give him a ceremonial posting and an administrative role where he doesn't actually impact the actual execution of the war that much. Von Falkenhayn has now had his rivals look, say, look, the blunder of Verdun. He does not to be in the top job and he is replaced and he is replaced by our favorite people. Paul von Hindenburg and Erich von Ludendorff. And Paul von Hindenburg is essentially turns into the uh, chief of general staff. Ludendorff is named the quartermaster general. In many ways, Ludendorff exerts a lot of influence and really gets down into the nitty gritty, both on the home front and on the actual military execution. And they are now in charge of the German war effort. And the one of, I wouldn't say it's the first thing that, that they do, but Ludendorff says that in my position at quartermaster general, we are going to a full war economy. And a lot of industry is conscripted, not that a lot of it wasn't already conscripted for military production. And that causes severe privation within the German, you know, civilian population. And nothing bad will ever come out of that. We will talk, I think, a lot more about the new chief of staff, the new dream team of German high command when it comes to 1917, because this is the first year uh, which they have full control over. But as for now, just realize Falkenhayn is out, Ludendorff and Hindenburg are in, and they will be until the end of the war with all that entails. But luckily, this isn't the only thing that happens on the political front. Because 1916, for all its bloodiness, or maybe just because of it, is also the year of major peace offensives. Uh, this is the first time that there are serious talks about peace, that there seems to be uh, a concerted effort to actually make peace. And this comes from two directions that are independent from each other, but both of which will play a major role going forward. The first of these peace offensives comes from the Americans. Woodrow Wilson, uh, the American president, and please remember, as of now, America is not in the war, has no intention of ever entering the war, and is ostensibly neutral. And this is a much realer neutrality than in World War II, where they are basically belligerents. I mean, the Americans in, uh, in World War II before 1941, they are about as neutral as the US is now in uh, in Ukraine. But in World War One, uh, American neutrality, while favoring uh, France and Great Britain, was a much more uh, real issue in terms of what neutrality actually entails. And what 
we were called a nation of war profiteers in this by this point. We are, I mean, this is the actual pr- European press are calling us war profiteers, and not without reason. No, 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 not at all. And, and and this is the reason why the Americans do not want to get into the war. They're profiting just fine. Uh, all of their achievements are fulfilled. Their economy uh, really uh, is really uh, boosted by this. Uh, all of their major rivals and potential rivals are weakening each other in this conflict. There is a lot of power up for grabs. Uh, so they will be in the winning seat without ever firing one shot in anger. So for the Americans, this is a, this is actually a good position. However, uh, it is not that great. Uh, So like the war in Ukraine, which favors the United States today, they would rather see peace uh, on uh, on their terms, obviously. Uh, But uh, the Americans are trying to broker a peace. Uh, and so Woodrow Wilson is opening himself uh, to, uh, and he's uh, he's sending out a call, basically, to all the belligerent powers to state their war aims and to come together uh, at the table. And the Germans, stupid as they are in all of matters, propaganda and diplomacy, react to it by stating their war aims um, and basically... Uh, brushing off uh, the American president. And not only are they more or less haughtily telling him uh, to go fuck himself, uh, but the war aims that they put out are uh, are also nothing that you can actually start a, a negotiation on with. And the Allies, who held their tongues and let the Germans blunder into it, now make all the right noises about a peace without victors and we, we all went to get along and uh, g- couldn't we just sit down at the table and they get all the PR rewards for it. This, in so far, is the fate of this first American peace offensive. There will be another one, uh, the more important, the more uh, real one, basically, in January of 1918, which we will talk about in our 1918 episode. But the Americans are, um, they have a history in World War I of proposing peace, which is important for establishing authenticity and, um, how would you call it, um, it's, it's basically a, a matter of reputation, uh, you know, uh, American reputation. And they get this reputation of the honest peace brokers, which will give rise to projections that cannot be held once they enter the war. Uh, but uh, these illusions uh, on the German side are nourished from uh, this event in 1916. And we also get another peace offensive uh, in 1916. And this one is the more consequential of the two. It is a German peace offensive, But it doesn't come from the German government. It comes from the Reichstag. And the Reichstag, uh, as you will uh, remember from our previous episodes on the constitutional structure of the German Empire, is a rather toothless beast. It has the budget right, which, great. But other than that, they are more or less shut out of government. However, uh, since the war doesn't go the way it was supposed to be going, uh, and since the government is proving not really cooperative and going into a more autocratic direction, three parties uh, in the Reichstag essentially joined forces. Um, and these three parties are the SPD, the Social Democrats, the Centrum, uh, so the Catholics, and the um, uh, the left liberals, the, the Fortschrittspartei, uh, they are called uh, in German, so the Progress Party, they are the left-leaning liberals. And these guys are now making common cause for the first time. This has been hitherto unimaginable. Never ever would you get a Catholic and a Social Democrat in the same room. Uh, and the liberals also weren't friends with any of those. But now they are united in their... 
um, in their aspiration to force a parliamentarization of Germany and to get a peace without victors, as they are calling it. And so in 1916, you get the peace address from the Reichstag. These three parties are voting on a resolution that says we need to get together and are negotiate a peace and said peace has to be done essentially without anyone getting anything out of it. Of course, when they say no one is getting anything out of it, they still imagine a favorable peace for Germany. After all, these are very nationalistic times and we have a bloody war for two and a half years now. Uh, but still, this is running completely counter to what the government uh, follows because the government is in it for total victory. Uh, at this point, they want to uh, annex a lot of territory. They want to restructure the whole of the European political order. And now comes the Reichstag and says, we have a different idea and comes on the stage as a player, starting a divide within Germany, a political divide within Germany that will reverberate throughout the decades. Because one of the major uh, reasons that the right wingers were late to give for the German defeat in World War One, is this uh, disunity within German society, within German politics, the idea that the Reichstag, that there is a political player that could follow an, a foreign policy initiative, a peace initiative that is not coordinated with the government itself, this is something that Hitler and the uh, and, uh, national socialists uh, and all other right-wingers want to avoid at all costs later on. So when we will do our inevitable series on uh, the Third Reich, just remember this point. Uh, this peace declaration of the Reichstag makes the Reichstag into the enemy of every German nationalist. Uh, it, for them, it proves the incompatibility of parliamentarism and what they, th what they see as German. These are just foreign concepts and everyone in the Reichstag is basically a traitor. Uh, and this goes back to this very moment. Yeah, it's it's more it's much more consequential in the actual peace, you know, the actual Treaty of Versailles, the November criminals myth. But this is where when it this is where it starts because not only does it not only is it the Reichstag which is asserting itself as a political force and one that specifically is counter to the current prevailing Kaiser you know Kaiser led direction, but the you know it will cause a backlash you know how, how dare these people who are civilians not actually fighting the war tell us when we need to make peace and you will see this conflict time and time again you saw it in vietnam you saw it in i mean you saw it in a lot of wars uh but uh, you know vietnam is the one that really stands out to me is that sort of uh that sort of issue but the the political opposition and this is not just in Germany. I mean, you're going to see the same thing with David Lloyd George in Britain. You're going to see the same thing with Clemenceau in France. You will see this. I mean, Clemenceau even famously said, war is too important to be left to the generals. And here is where the Reichstag is asserting the same thing. How would you say that in German? War is too important to be left to the generals. Krieg ist zu wichtig, um ihn den Generälen zu überlassen. And, you know, I... I hate to say it, but uh, I think that's a little—that's a, a little less uh, much of a zinger than "war is too important to be left to the generals." But uh, it's definitely a sentiment that it's going to have a strong impact in 1916 and especially in 1917 and 1918. And then uh, once again in World War II, uh, as I already mentioned. Indeed. Indeed. 
This is one of the big lessons uh, that everyone seems to draw out. Uh, just as an aside, uh, I'm always saying that World War II is basically the biggest social experiment that anyone ever did. Uh, it is trying to suss out which theory about World War One is right. Uh, you know, is it the theory that this was a stupid war to begin with, one that shouldn't have been fought and couldn't have been won, or could it have been won if it had been prosecuted just the right way? And World War II is basically this gigantic uh, experiment in trying to prosecute it the right way. And I think history has been largely conclusive on the outcome. Yep. 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 I mean, there's a there's a reason that civilian control of the military is now so enshrined in so many in so many nations the world over. And a lot of that has to do with the essentially the I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, a lot that predates this. But if if that's the concept, you know, for a modern republic, a non-military republic, then World War One and World War Two are the essentially the 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 proof of that when you say, look, this is what happens when you do have a military government that conducts a total war in, you know, a total industrial war. And uh, it causes domestic pressures that demand civilian assertion of control over the military. And uh, now these days, I mean, all of the belligerent powers of World War I have this uh, thing. So I guess that's, that's really where the proof is in the pudding. Totally. I have one last um, domestic issue that we need to uh, that we need to talk about. It's also in Germany because in 1916, uh, the aforementioned blockade uh, that the Allies have really bites for the first time. And what we get in 1916 to 1917 in the winter is the so-called Steckrüben winter. Uh, I don't even know what a Steckrübe is uh, in English. Yeah, just turnip. Okay, because. Yep, it's just turnip. So it's the turnip winter, and it is called the turnip winter because people had nothing to eat but turnips. And, I mean, no disrespect to turnips, uh, but, of course, they are not the most nourishing or most well... Uh, um, uh, how, how do you say? The, the most tasty food. So people do not have enough to eat. It's a real hunger winter, and tens of thousands die. Not from direct starvation. Uh, th this is a myth from later on, uh, th that basically Germans uh, died of hunger like it was the ghetto in uh, in Krakow or Warsaw or something like that. Uh, but uh, malnourishment led to uh, being open to all kinds of diseases, uh, more workplace accidents, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and a lot more people die than usual. The numbers are highly contested, but it goes into the tens and maybe even hundreds of thousands uh, of people that die as a result uh, of mal malnourishment and the blockade. And this obviously becomes another uh, thing that is very important for the German war effort because it is accompanied by a precipitous decline in morale uh, at the home front, which thus far had been spared uh, the worst of the war. And that decline in, morale, uh, in moral um, uh, is never recovered throughout the war. And it is one of the many, many lessons that the right-wingers will draw from World War I. Uh, the highest priority when it comes to the home front for the Nazis later on will be to retain food, supply, food supplies. And, and they will manage to do so way into 1944 and uh, in huge parts of Germany, even in 1945, before uh, the supply with food breaks down. And, and this helps to go, uh, helps quite a long way. This is the correct uh, um, lesson from World War One. 
if your civilian population starves, your soldiers' morale will also break because the soldiers are getting all these letters from home uh, about starving people, about their loved ones uh, being left in the lurch, basically. So they are risking their lives in the trenches and the government can't even save their loved ones at home. Uh, this is something that the German army and the German, uh, the German government will never really recover from. It's always simmering in the background. And while the government scrambles to prevent uh, such an outcome again in 1917, and we will talk about it um, for the winter of 17 to 18, and how they uh, actually managed to prevent it, which isn't pretty, um, th this is an important moment uh, in, um, in the socio... Um, uh, how, how would you praise the uh, sociological pattern uh, of German society and the army? Yeah, no, I mean, and the, and the thing is, is I mean, you know, there, and this is this is an influence the world over. I mean, the home front influences uh, the, the the battle really significantly, and if your people are not being taken care of at home, then to, to the soldier, a lot of times it feels like a betrayal, like the government is selling out you know, the people that you love for themselves. And if there's one thing that undermines the morale of an army, it's when they think that the top brass just does not care about them. Uh, that is actually was a huge problem with the U.S. military uh, in the, the past couple of decades uh, when it came to Iraq, Afghanistan and things like that, uh, was the idea that, that there was just not, no care that the, you know, the the, the brass cared more about their political beltway careers. The politicians cared more about making statements and securing votes rather than actually delivering things that were concrete. And that is in, in Germany here, it's like, wait, our people are starving and you can't take care of them. Then why are we fighting for you when you're not going to take care of, you know, my wife, my children? Um, and that that is big. Um, it, and the thing is, a lot of military societies will specifically, you know, have things like childcare and things like that, specifically because that, you know, not having that taken care of significantly impairs the fighting ability and morale of the soldiers when they're deployed out to the field. And with that look into the winter of 1916, 1917, we are at the end of our podcast for today. So we have still no decision in World War One, and neither is one in the cards. Many people are dead. The situation for the civilians has become worse. A lot of illusions have been shattered and everyone is now clear they need something else. Yep. All right. So now that we've got uh, still no, we've got some half-hearted peace proposals that don't go anywhere and a lot of battles that don't go anywhere uh, and a lot of death on, and maybe, just maybe, 1917, we'll turn it around. And uh, I believe Stefan may have a spoiler for you as to whether or not it does. It won't. <laughs> All right, but we still have a lot of fun in 1917. We've got, um, let me see what happens in 1917. The Russian Revolution, the Americans enter the war. Oh, it is a, it is definitely a busy year. Oh, the Battle of Caporetto, the Italians almost uh, collapsed. So we have a lot of fun for you uh, in 1917 for our next month. And until then, thanks everyone for listening, as always, and 
check out the other programs that we have. If you head over to Patreon, you can get bonus episodes, you can get essays, you can get audio versions of these essays. Sean and I just finished covering The Last of Us for our um, $5 tier. So if you want our thoughts on every episode of The Last of Us, please check it out. You can get even more bonus podcasts. There's a whole shebang of stuff. Thank you, Jim, for doing this with me as always. And we will see each other again next month. If you like this podcast, you can support us via PayPal at paypal.me slash boilleather, or you go over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash boilleatheraudiohour. Patreon offers many subscription tiers, which give you early access to episodes, the possibility to weigh in on topic choices, bonus podcasts like the Boil Leather Audio Moment or the Boil Leather Audio Conversation, and of course, the possibility to be mentioned right in the beginning of every podcast. Hop over to patreon.com slash boiledleatheraudiohour or contribute over PayPal at paypal.me slash boiledleather.